capetalk.co.za on the app on dstv channel 885 and across the city on 567 am join the conversation this is cape talk this is cape talk at 26 minutes to 10 it is today with kino kami's okay so in for kino he returns on monday at nine o'clock the moment is here. The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, is with us. Any questions that you might have for him, you can use the WhatsApp line and send a voice note, 072-567-1567. It has been a number of years since I had the pleasure of hosting a show with Chris on, and I think it was when Ridi Kabi was still on, and I stood in for her. That's a long time ago. Chris Smith, how are you doing, brother? <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yeah, morning. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How are you surviving this new reality that we're living in? Oh, day to day. Every day is a new day. Actually, you know, for people doing medicine, it's really busy. And for people doing media, Mm. it's really busy. So I've got a double whammy, haven't I? Uh, So it's been a really, really strange time. Um, But kind of exhilarating on the one hand, awful on the other hand. And it's that yin and yang. It's been a very, very strange experience. When was the last time you were here? Because you used to come to, to Johannesburg regularly and 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 yeah. interact with people it's been a while eh? well uh, i was coming most years and the last time i was i was in the country was 2018 i would have come this year but i couldn't because of what's going on so i didn't didn't turn yeah. up but no the last time was two years ago two and a bit years ago so i'm, I'm getting withdrawal symptoms do you want me back? Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, Chris, we've got a whole lot of people lined up to ask you all sorts of questions. I've got a few on my own, but we prioritize our people. Zuki is the first one up. Zuki in table view. Zuki, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Victor. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Chris is listening. Hi, Chris. Hi, Zuki. Um, I have a question about um, when your hands smell like onion. I found that no amount of detergent or soap gets rid of that smell. But if I rub sugar on my hands and just rinse it off, the smell completely disappears. And I was just wondering how on earth that happens. I'll listen on the radio. Uh, Zuki, I, I must admit, I don't know the answer to this. But the smell that you're smelling from onions, onions are members of the allium family of vegetables, and they produce sulfur-rich compounds in their leaves and in their flesh. And those sulfur-rich compounds are the things that make them taste and, and smell the way that they do. And the delicious flavours that they impart to the food that we cook with them are down to a lot of those sulphur compounds. They're actually there to be a deterrent, believe it or not, because there are other animals, unlike us, that don't like eating those particular flavours. So if you produce a lot of them, it deters animals from eating you. Now, that means that those things tend to be quite long-lived, they're quite volatile, quite stinky, and they they will be able to bind on to other chemicals quite well in order to stabilise themselves. Why sugar should be able to prise them off your skin, I'm not sure. One person did suggest to me that they actually washed their hands with almost like a, a steel ball, a little bit rough on the surface, that you could rub on your skin, and they found that that removed it. It might be that the iron that's coming off of that participates in some kind of chemical reaction that it catalyzes to, to break it down, the, the sulfur compounds from the material. The only thing I can think of is that when you do take a, a, a sugar solution or something, perhaps it's helping to detach layers of skin. Because if you've got something that's slightly rough, slightly concentrated solution, Mm. it might help to rub off the outer layers of the skin. And the compounds that are the smells are bound to the top layer of the skin. 
And so anything that's that's mildly abrasive or causes you to rub your skin a bit more, because remember that if you put detergent on your skin, it's quite slippery. So your fingers might slide past each other. But if you use a solution that's less slippery, therefore a little bit abrasive, it might work, not because it's sugar per se, but because it's causing the detachment of the surface layers of the skin. And that's where the compounds are. So they get washed down the drain. You could try the control experiment if you wanted to, and you could make a solution of salt water and see if that made a difference because that you make the salt at a similar sort of concentration to the sugar and if it's nothing to do with the chemistry and everything to do with abrasion because they're two totally different things sugar and salt then there's no chemical uh, aspect to this it'll be because of the abrasion so try it and let us know how you get on that makes a whole lot of sense one of the one of my pet pet peeves chris is the smell of bleach on your hands <laughs> I cannot stand it, and it's it takes a while before it comes off. So I'm going to try that the sugar and see if it works out, because um, I really, really resent that smell. Make it's, sure there are no wasps worse. around though when you do it, or you're going to be a target. They'll be after you. Oh, wasps and ants. You just re- you just reminded me of some childhood traumas that I have with wasps. <laughs> so let's move. Let's move on. Rod is in Musenberg. Hi, Rod. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Chris. My wife refuses to use aluminium to do any cooking because uh, she believes it'll poison us. Now, I, what I understand is if one cooks something acidic in it, it sort of could dissolve some of the aluminium and become a problem. But for normal cooking, for instance, cooking potatoes or boiling water, what is the truth about that? Do you know? Hello, Rod. The evidence linking um, aluminium to various health outcomes is quite weak but there there is some evidence and so this has led people to say well we should be cautious about what we cook in aluminium pots because aluminium is normally the surface of the pot is protected by an oxide layer aluminium is quite a reactive metal and so the minute you expose it to the air it reacts with oxygen and produces an aluminium oxide that defends the metal underneath from further attack chemically or or from the air which is why iron rusts by producing iron oxide but this very stable aluminium oxide layer protects aluminium and it won't go rusty but if you put something in contact with the aluminium that's capable of removing that oxide layer you will liberate ions of aluminium and they'll get into whatever's in the pot and then they could get into you so that's where the guidance on don't cook really acidic things in your pots comes from because the acid will strip that oxide layer off and liberate aluminium the things that are that are really acidic tend to be fruits and particularly rhubarb. This is notorious. People often make rhubarb crumbles in their aluminium baking tins and they say, yeah. I hardly yeah. had to do any washing up because the tin was so bright and shiny when I finished my cooking. And the reason is because the acid in the rhubarb has stripped all the aluminium off along with all of the uh, sugar and everything else that you cooked in the tin. And, and a lot of that aluminium will have gone into you. There, as I say, is weak evidence linking the aluminium, even if you did that, to bad health outcomes. But where this comes from is that in, say, Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's disease is one form of dementia, which is atrophy of the brain as we get older. That's characterized by a buildup in the brain of these plaques. They're aggregates of a protein called beta amyloid. And if you look down a microscope at where these plaques have formed, people have found in the centres or cores of these plaques aluminium ions. And so this has led to the suggestion that perhaps aluminium could be one of the triggers that starts the pathological process that leads to Alzheimer's disease. But 
Equally, you could argue that when you have abnormal anatomy in your brain because you have these plaques and they're very sticky bodies, anything that's a highly reactive small particle like aluminium, which is very good at sticking to other small particles, is going to make a beeline straight for these plaques. So we don't really know whether it's cause or effect. The aluminium starts the plaques forming or whether the plaques are already forming and they tend to act a bit like a magnet for aluminium particles and the aluminium goes in there just because they're already there and has nothing to contribute to the process. So at the moment we don't know for sure, but it's better to be safe than sorry. So people argue aluminium pots and pans are great, but don't use them for highly acidic foodstuffs like cooking up, stewing your fruit or making rhubarb crumble. All right, thank you very much, Rod, for that. A couple of your messages that I must make sure that we do read. John asking, uh, Chris, why is it when it hails that the hail doesn't puncture through leaves on a tree or a plant because the high speed um, because of the high speed in which uh, the hail drops? So why doesn't yes. hail puncture through leaves? It's tempting to think that it should. But if you were to think of hail compared with, say, a bullet, a bullet would be going a lot faster than a particle of ice dropping through the air. The hail particles are irregularly shaped and they therefore have quite a lot of air resistance. So they're actually moving relatively slowly. They're not that heavy. And because they are big, when they hit a leaf, it's much easier for the leaf to just deflect them because leaves are already pointing downwards anyway, and leaves have evolved to allow water to run off their surfaces. So they tend to deform on a stalk downwards when something hits them. So the leaf just behaves a little bit like a trapdoor. The hailstone hits the leaf, pushes it out of the way and carries on on its path because it's easier to do that than to overcome the natural uh, resistance mm. of the tissue of the leaf and penetrate through the leaf. Something that was more streamlined, travelling more rapidly, like a bullet, would punch a hole in the leaf, but a hailstone doesn't have those characteristics, so it knocks the leaf out of the way. All right, a message from a question from Anne asking, um, sometimes I get a fluttery feeling in my chest. It happens even when I am relaxed. Why does this happen? Uh, hello, Anne. We don't say how old you are. Um, it might well be that uh, you have um, a condition of the heart, which is an irregular heartbeat. And it might be that it's there all the time and you just notice it at certain times more than others. Or more likely, you just have what are called ectopic beats. And some people get this. It's perfectly harmless. It won't, won't affect your health in any way. But for some reason, in some people's hearts, you get extra beats which come in from time to time and you experience them as a fluttering sensation because your body is used to the natural rhythmic beating of your heart. And when you have extra beats in there which are out of sync with that rhythm, it feels a bit strange. There's another condition which is called atrial flutter, where your heart can go into runs of, of fast beating from time to time. It's worth if this has been happening more recently or more often, or there are other symptoms associated with it, it's worth getting this investigated just in case there's anything underlying this. If it's something that you've had for many, many years, it's not changing, it's completely stable, and it's not otherwise associated with anything else going on with your health, and it's not affecting you in any other way, it's probably absolutely fine, and it's probably just one of those things, these ectopic beats that people get from time to time. All right, thanks a lot for that. Um, and Jen in Fishel, thanks for your patience, Jen. Um, hi. Um, uh, Chris, just before I get to my question, um, you missed something with that, the, the lady with the sugar. 
she did in fact mention that she rubbed her hands with sugar and then rinsed them. So she didn't use a solution. She actually did use abrasive sugar. Ah, I missed that. You're um, right. So, so I think it is an abrasive effect then, isn't yeah. it, Jen? Yeah, so I think you were right. But my question is, it's a bit of an oddball thing, but it's just something that, that I've been thinking about. And, and I know that it's wacky, okay? But if every single person in the world decided it was time to go for a swim, <laughs> and they went, walked into the ocean up to their shoulders, how much would the sea level rise? <laughs> Barely at all, Jen. Uh, the reason is that, um, yes, you're right, there's, there's 7.8 billion people on Earth at the moment, and they would displace their own volume and in, in the water if they waded in up to their shoulders or something. So therefore you take up the space of about 7.8 billion people. But that volume compared to the vastness of the oceans which make up three quarters of the surface of the earth, it would be barely perceptible. It would displace the water a bit. But compared with other local factors like waves, wind, pressure of the atmosphere which causes sea level to rise and fall and tides on top of that, it would be barely perceptible. I'll tell you what I'll do. All right, Jen. I will, I'll tell you what I'll do, Jen, because it's a fascinating question. Uh, I will work it out for next week. I will, I will work this out and, and come up with the answer for you for next week because it's a fascinating question, but I'm going to guess my instinct is that it will be barely perceptible. But let's work it out, and I'll tell you what I think the contribution to ocean level rise, sea level rise would be if all, all 8 billion of us, give or take, took a swim at the same time. Look forward to that. Catherine, standing by in the CBD. Hi, Chris. Um, my question is about the COVID test. I mean, if the COVID virus is that uh, viral, you know, that contagious, surely it's not necessary for the test. Well, let me ask, why is the test itself so invasive, such a long thing that goes into the back of the head, as opposed to a swab that you could take off, you know, the inside of the mouth? Uh, okay, yeah, not, so not just to, to summarise this question then, um, the the thing that's really being asked is why, why do we have to almost feel like we're poking our brains out with these swabs, ramming them up our noses and invasively into the backs of our throats in order to detect coronavirus? And the answer is that it has a long incubation period. It can be up to 14 days. Well, we've detected 11 days. We take 14 days to be on the safe side. And the amount of virus that's in a person is very variable. Some people have enormous amounts of virus some people have very little amounts of virus the virus also tends to spread down into the lungs and so samples from the lungs tend to actually have more virus in than samples from the upper respiratory tract like the nose and throat so in order to surmount those difficulties that there's variable amounts of virus you may have different points in the incubation period when you are sampling and a person who's very early in the infection will have very little virus a person who's much later in the infection might have little virus because they've almost cleared the infection and a person who's at peak symptoms could have a lot of virus and because we, we know that, that it's easy to miss the infected points at the back of the throat because of these variations they do these very comprehensive swabs up the nose and into the back of the throat to try to gather enough material to be as sure as we can be, in other words, to have the best sensitivity and specificity with these tests, that we're not missing cases. Thanks for your question, Catherine. Keith is in Stanford. Hi, Keith. Hi. Good morning, Chris, and it's a wonderful show you have. My question has to do with um, data transmission speed. On Kino's show the other day, um, 
It was mentioned that there was a world record data transmission speed of 178 terabytes a second. And after I'd gone well, I went and had a look at Dr. or Professor Google, and it seems that an, elect- an electromagnetic frequency of that uh, of that frequency is up in the visible spectrum around blue somewhere, I think it is. And so my question is, is that physically possible to sort of modulate a frequency that high? Um, or has this um, record been broken in some other way? Hello, Keith. Um, first of all, I'm not familiar with the record you're referring to, but of course it exists. How fast can we transmit data around the Earth? And interestingly, my daughter was asking me a similar question the other day about what are fibre optics and how do we send data along fibre optics? And the question that's really being asked is, if we're going to send information, we need to be able to send almost like Morse code as pulses of light to transmit data down a fibre optic because that's a thin thread of glass and you put a pulse of light in at one end it travels enormously long distances and comes out at the other end as a pulse of light and if you trans or transform your data into almost data morse code and send flashes of light down the fibre optic you can transmit them at the speed of light so then it becomes a function of well how fast can you push the data along it's the speed of light how much data can you push along that comes down to how fast you can make your light blink on and off. And this is done by using extremely fast lasers. These are laser machines that will actually flicker on and off at very, very high frequencies. So you're not restricted by the wavelength of the light at that point. You're restricted by actually how fast you can turn the light on and off because you're sending packets of light, photons, bursts of photons, at the speed at which the laser is modulated. In other words, at which the laser is turning on and off. And it's possible to make lasers that operate very, very fast indeed, which is how we're able to pack so much data down a thread of glass that uh, is so small you can barely see it. Thanks a lot for your call there, Keith. We've got some voice notes that I, I must make sure that we squeeze in, Chris, before we run out of time. Good morning. This is Gillian phoning from Somerset West. I wondered if the scientists could help me with something that I've been thinking about for ages. It's one of those questions that keeps you awake at night. Why is it now that all eggs are brown? When I was <laughs> younger, having a brown egg was a special treat. It was almost as if the egg was more tasty. But now every egg is brown and you don't see a white egg. So I just wondered, is it the feed, the way they farmed or the breed of hen? If you could answer that question, I'd be very grateful. Thank you. It's diversity, mm. Gillian. Um, the answer is that it's down to which breed of hen. Different breeds of hen lay eggs of specific colours. So different horses for different courses. And uh, if you're eating mainly brown eggs, then that particular breed of chicken are brown layers. There are other breeds that lay white eggs. There are some some uh, chicken breeds that will produce blue eggs. I had a very nice friend of mine's got some chickens and she brought me some eggs around the other day. And they're an interesting blue colour. So all, all different colours are available. Just a few messages. I want to make sure that we don't um, miss anyone's question. Linda asked earlier, uh, please ask the doctor about his COVID-19 paper he was going to talk to us about today. Uh, Well, we have a paper that's come out in the last week or so, which was a test for coronavirus. 
basically what we're doing is we sent from Cambridge hundreds of samples from patients who'd had coronavirus infection in Cambridge. We sent it to Western Australia, to colleagues there at Perth at Murdoch University. And uh, we've used a big analytical laboratory there to look for specific chemical fingerprints or markers that predict when a person will get severe coronavirus infection or not. And and we found some very interesting results and we've just published them. And if you want to follow at Naked Scientists on Twitter, if you don't already, I will tweet the reference to this paper out after the programme. So that's at Naked Scientists. And the, the key reason we're doing this is that we want to be able to come up with not just a test for have you got coronavirus or not that doesn't have all the problems of the present testing, i.e. missing cases. We want to look for a particular pattern of, of chemicals in the bloodstream that will predict whether or not a person will get severe disease. Because if a person already has a chemical signature there, well, well ahead of getting any kind of infection, we can say to a person, you're at high risk or you're at low risk, and then they know that if they do catch coronavirus where they stand and perhaps that will inform intervening more early with a person having the infection rather than saying well let's see how you go it might be that more aggressive therapy earlier on in the process for those people at higher risk will change the course of the disease for them so that's where we're, we're ultimately going with this piece of research all right thanks uh, michael in durbanville thanks for your patience thank you morning guys morning michael one of these days Arthur, it's going to have a very tolerance alcohol in your blood for driving or doing anything is there anything in the diet or any exercise, you know, cough mixtures and all that that um, is going to show up an alcohol volume and you're going to touch alcohol and you're going to fail the test? There are lots of things which contain alcohol without us realising. And they range from trivial things like gripe water to settler stomach to, you know, fruitcake and Christmas, Christmas cake. And it, yeah. it is possible, and we have done the experiment on the naked scientists, to consume alcohol in cake, and you will get potentially over the limit. And we have actually done the experiment where we got a policeman to come in with his breathalyzer, and we fed people various portions of alcohol or other things containing alcohol. And if there's alcohol in the thing that you eat, whether it's cooking, cake, or just a glass of booze, it's alcohol that's going into your body. And the rate at which it's absorbed into the bloodstream, the rate at which your liver breaks it down, and the size of your body will determine the amount of alcohol in what they call milligrams per cent, which is basically how yeah. much alcohol is dissolved in each each little bit of the blood. And if you're over a threshold, you're over the limit. And the argument goes that if, you're, if you've got that much alcohol in you, then it will have been sufficient to impair your nervous system, and that will impair your ability to drive. All right, Michael, thank you very much for your call. Mike in the CBD, you are our last caller. Mike? Morning. Um, I have an interesting question for Chris. If we are unable to supersede the speed of light, how are we then able to create a camera that can operate faster than the speed of light? Hmm. Um, Mike, we, we can't actually move faster than the speed of light the fastest thing in the universe is light. But you can certainly make things which turn on and off at a higher frequency than light. It doesn't mean that they're physically making something move faster than light. And as far as we can tell, the rules of physics dictate that the speed of light can't be broken. All right, Chris, we got a couple of um, uh, comments uh, with about a minute left on, on that initial question around how we, we remove the smell of onions and garlic. A couple of people, Sharon, saying to rid odor, garlic and onion from hands, a little squirt of dishwashing liquid and rub your hands all over your chrome tap, then rinse 
it smells good. Okay, that's quite interesting. Um, FYI, yes, rubbing salt also removes onion smell. Um, I use it always. And then here's a question to wrap it up, uh, Chris. Why can I hear my heartbeat in my ears? Aha, this is something called the occlusion effect. And the reason for this, you often notice this most when you lay down in bed at night and your ear is pressed against the pillow. When you do this, you've basically blocked off your external auditory canal, which is the thing that you stick your finger in, in your ear, and goes down towards your eardrum, and you've made a resonant cavity. And that resonant cavity amplifies certain sounds or frequencies. It's the same reason that you hear the sea when you hold a seashell to your ear. You're not really hearing the sea. That is a Helmholtz resonator. It is amplifying certain frequencies because of the shape of the shell. Similarly, the shape of your external ear canal amplifies certain frequencies and those vibrations come from the fact that when blood rushes through your blood vessels it makes a whooshing noise and some of those whooshing Mm. frequencies get amplified in that short resonant cavity you've created when you press your ear to your pillow or when you put your finger to your ear and close your ears the whooshing noise is vibrations of certain frequencies which happen to resonate at that wavelength created in that resonant chamber all right, let's leave it at that. Chris, thank you very much. The Naked Titans back once again next week, Friday. It is 10 o'clock and it is time for the latest in Eyewitness News with Chanel September. <laughs>